Listener Production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. No dad wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great, but you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent, parenting educator and author and champion of boys and men. And this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is John Butler. So man, I am That's me. (laughs) The John Butler trio (laughs) shot to fame through the 2000s with songs like Zebra, Better Than, Something's Gotta Give and Better Man, the song you just heard. John was born in the US but moved to WA with his Australian dad when his parents divorced in 1986. Since then, he's been part of the Australian fabric through both his music and his activism. John is married to Danielle Caruana, who's also known as Mama Kin, and has a daughter, Banjo, 21, and a son, Charlie, who's 17. Hey, John, welcome to The Good Enough Dad. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I feel very honoured. You're, you're a bit of a big deal in my neck of the woods, so um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm trying not to be nervous. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're so good. Okay, so you... You know, you toured around the world, but your home base is WA. Where are you living now? And tell me about your home. Is that kind of a special place, family space? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think all homes are pretty special. We've lived the last nine years in Margaret River in the southwest of Western Australia. And we've kind of semi-relocated up to Fremantle for my boy to finish his last year of uh, high school. John, your parents divorced when you were 11 and you moved to Australia. Now, that's a long, long way from the US. Yeah. What memories do you have of that transition time? Was it was it a smooth? Was it tough? What was it for you? I don't know if we have enough time today. <laughs> <I guess you. laughs> it was a lot. It was it was huge. It was huge. It was the one of the hardest moments in my life and one of the best things that we ever did. You know, I yeah. told my dad to find a place for the river in the backyard. I'm very freshwater-minded. And uh, he found a place for the river in the backyard, kind of by accident, because it was the only place we could afford. And that place was Pinjarra, Western Australia. And that was the place that my great-great-grandfather was buried in an unmarked grave. So we yeah. swam back upstream like salmon to uh, some home country. And yeah, culturally, it was extremely difficult. A lot of xenophobia, a lot of racism, a lot of homophobia in small country town, 1986, Pinjarra. But, you know, I made, I made good friends with that river and I, I made good friends with the indigenous families in town and had, and had some very formative experiences that had shaped who I am. So there's a whole chapter I could go into, but it, it was, yeah, this is very, um, very formative. Paint a bit of a childhood picture in terms of that river and, you know, being a bit wild and free. And you had siblings? Yeah, I had a younger sister named Jane and my older brother, Jimmy uh, stayed in San Diego to do college. 
it was amazing to, you know, amongst all the kind of like cultural acclimatization and uh, what have you, and also my parents getting back and forth together over the next 10 years, like really traumatic kind of, yeah, uh, weird stuff. That river was a really good friend. We had a, a, a little dinghy with an outboard engine. We surfed that river every summer. I went up that river and camped by myself and with friends off the boat. Um, Found you know abandoned farmhouses to make your own as a teenager and hang out in. And uh, it was a wonderland, absolute wonderland for us. And um, yeah, and it's it stayed with me. I always have to be around rivers. And what age were you when you're out there in that dinghy? Because sometimes today's parents are a little bit more worried about safety. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, from 11, 12, yeah. we were, I mean, I moved here at 10, 10, 11. So about 11, the minute we moved there, we got a dinghy, uh, got my uncle's dinghy and got taught how to, to to drive the thing. And then we were just self, <laughs> self uh, Gone. entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dad was there sometimes, mom was there sometimes, but like a lot of times it's just like, we, you got this. And it's back in the day, you know, yeah. where uh, it just seems a little less, uh, in some ways, less regulations. And, you know, we never had skippers tickets yeah. or any of that. We were just flogging up and down that river, scurfing our heads off. And and it was, as I said, a complete wonderland. Yeah. Yeah. Was music a part of your life then or was there a time? How did you step into that where it's obviously a part of your heart and your soul? But where did it where did it land? I landed, fully embedded, landed in, in, and became a complete overall infection. Uh, uh, when I was 20, 21, I started wanting to play around 13 or 14, but broke my arm twice skateboarding. Started when I was 16 and it was just a hobby from 16 to 20. It was, awesome. you know, it was a way to journal entry, the trials and tribulations of, uh, of the melodrama that is teenage hood. Yeah. And then 21, I discovered open tuning. I started busking. I got paid more in a half hour than I'd ever been paid in my life to that point. You know, my highest yeah. paying job before 21 was nine bucks an hour fruit picking. Yep. Five five bucks an hour, it's doing stained glass. And I made 30 bucks an hour busking. And I was like, ooh, mm-hmm. something happening here. Yeah. And uh, from there, it was full-blown addiction. Uh, <laughs> oh, come on. Total, total focus. Creative <laughs> spark landed and it couldn't go out. Your dad lost his father when he was nine. Do you think that impacted the way that he raised you or how he was as a father? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, completely. I mean, there's hours of a conversation here and I do totally believe in intergenerational trauma and inherited trauma. And um, yeah, huge, massive, massive. I mean, he lost his dad when he was nine and he basically raised himself or, or at least he kind of found and kind of put together a patchwork of what it meant to be a man himself. Um, I think his mother, Mayaya Philippa, she lost her husband in a bushfire in 1958. The youngest child was one. The eldest was 10, and she had eight of them. She's a Greek Bulgarian woman who can speak six languages in the southwest of Western Australia, 1958. If I thought... Pinjara was racist and homophobic and, and xenophobic in 86. You can only imagine what that would have been like. So she did a great job, but it's hard to raise boys into men, even for anyone. And single mothers are like, 
Mm. Uh, uh, my hat's off to them. But yeah, I think young men need good male role models. And, um, you know, I've spoken at lakes with common peers, Arna Rubenstein, you know, I know him, he's a friend of mine and, and other men who do rites of passage. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think he missed out on a lot. And I think some of his influences, male influences were questionable. <laughs> some were good, some were very questionable. What lessons about fatherhood do you think you actually got from your dad that you've taken forward? Because there's always some we can, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, he taught me what to do and what not to do by example. Um, and, you know, he taught me how to build things. You know, I was massively, massively uh, into being in the armed forces from the time I was literally 18 months to about 12. And um, I was like, can I have this Uzi? Can I have this? You know, you're in America too, where they just constantly like plying you with toy arsonary. Um, and he's like, no, go to the shed and build it. He was a carpenter by trade. I learned a lot in the shed through him. And I still make, like, I still make my own knives and I, I make lots of different things. And, um, and, I, and I pass that down to my son and my daughter. And um, so, I, yeah, I learned how to make things with my own two hands, but I also learned uh, what not to do, which is, you know, my dad suffered from PTSD from his childhood. He had learning difficulties uh, that no one even knew about. And he was violent. He was violent. And he was the most generous male role model in my life. And also the most frightening and injuring male in my life. So yeah, you know, he taught me a lot of good things and he taught me the impact of violence. And that's something that I'm, um, as somebody who's genetically very much the same way, I have ADHD, I have PTSD from him. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it related anxiety from those things. Yeah, regulation, mood regulation, mental health regulation is a massive thing, massive thing for me and, and in my family in general. And so, um, yeah, my family is you know, through that moment, through that moment, January 2nd, 1958, it kind of shattered in ways the kind of genetic psyche of my family. And we, there's so many in my family who suffer from anxiety, depression, and all these other different things. And rightly so. And there's no support for those young kids and that mother from 1958. So, yeah, I learned a lot from him. And, and um, you know, I... I love them and I loved them and, and feared them, you know. Yeah. I'm just wondering in those days when you were building things with your dad, one of the things you might not have been aware of was that was being completely present for periods of time with a job to do. Oh, yeah. It's a secret goal that a lot of dads don't realise that that is what a kid wants is this 100% pre you know, like even though he had those other that other side, that that was that was a goal that he did give you, and he taught you to do oh. stuff that was useful. Oh man, totally, totally. I mean, I, I, exactly. He was there, and it helped me every step of the way. He taught me how to teach myself, and it's something I, as I said before, I've truly passed down to my children. And you know, when they want to do something, I'm like, yeah, let's 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 make it. Let's make it. Let's have. You know, I made lots. We made lots of the toys for the kids. You know, we made my kids mini ramp and. <laughs> Every step of the way, I, I, I knew how important that was. 
Because yeah. I, th- I think those things actually, as much as you might, no one's perfect and, and violence is violence and I'll make no excuses for it. But to feel loved and feel like you're a priority for somebody, a real priority in time, that could do a lot to alleviate some of the mistakes. And I definitely take those things on, you know. When you became a dad for the first time, had you formed a sense of the kind of dad you wanted to be or how prepared were you for becoming a dad? Uh, in hindsight, I was completely unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know, hindsight gives you 20, 20 views. And that's all this, there's all this talk and, and I've spoken to the mother of my children and many mother, other mothers and fathers. It's like all the talk about how not to get pregnant, how to get pregnant, <laughs> how to get the baby out, breathing, you know, you know, oh, then it's like when you're done, they're like, see ya. And you like just literally <laughs> walk off with probably some forms of PTSD. At least my wife did it after 38 hours of labor and it, like nothing. So, um, yeah, I look back and uh, yeah, I was completely unprepared and I probably was still a child. I mean, which is another conversation again, but my frontal lobe wasn't even fully developed. I was 27 years old. <laughs> my wife was, but yeah. I wasn't. Yeah, I was not prepared and it took quite a few years and there was like, you know, I don't know the exact quote, but it goes roughly like, hey, we have two kids. I don't need a third. Can you man up? Yeah. And that's, you know, a huge, huge word, you know, a huge phrase, man up, especially in days in the shadow of toxic masculinity. But there is a real moment of like, hey, I need an adult in the room. And I'm lucky that she was patient. I mean, it took a while for me to come online, I think, to be to be vulnerably, bluntly honest. Yeah, no, John, that's something I have heard many a time where there's this point where you just can't go running around doing what you did before because right now we need all hands on deck. Step up. Yeah, step up. And like, and I think the biggest thing that I keep on, I've heard, and it took me a long time to get, of course, is like, you know, this idea like, I can't read your mind. You know, I can't read a woman's mm-hmm. mind. It's like, but at the same time, the society we live in, mothers, boys, there's so many boys and men's bodies. Like a society kind of shapes around like, almost like, what do you need? What do you need? And we have these, we have these, these boys and men's bodies. But um, one thing a woman needs when they're like literally breastfeeding, have mastitis, literally feel like their body's been in a car accident after labor, thinking about all these different things is like, do I have to like ask for, I mean, you, I know you'll do everything that I ask, but ha- how about some common sense about what might need to be done? Like the house is upside down. There needs to be some laundry done. Who's cooking tonight? I'm obviously in bed with my stylist. Like, you know, I don't want to have to ask. Yeah. And, and those are yeah. things, <laughs> yeah, like a lot of men learn late. And I think it's because of how we shape young boys mm-hmm. in society and all this talk of how to get pregnant. Well, how about how to be a decent husband, decent yeah. parent. And, um, you know, that yeah, those things take a while. And I feel for I feel for a lot of men. I know that's controversial kind of to say, but like I, I do. I, I I think the idea of patriarchy or this this way of society is is hindered men immensely and it made us feel quite lost in a lot of ways. You're absolutely right. And that's kind of why one of the reasons we did the podcast was because there are dads who are wanting, right? I wanna be able to know how do I support 
this woman and this new baby or these children in a way that my own dad didn't because that imprint's not there. But how do I get a new imprint? Uh, How can I be the dad I want to be? And that's why, you know, we're looking at it. And that's why dad started turning up to seminars and going, just give me a couple of things. I'll go home and nail it right now. I don't want to know the science. Just give me some practical things I can do tomorrow. And then they step up and off and do it, which is so damn wonderful. It's a big shift. Do you reckon becoming a dad influenced you creatively as a musician and a singer? Yeah, immensely. I mean, immensely. <laughs> best material? Is that? No, not necessarily the best material, but kind of, <laughs> you know, material that definitely turned into some of my, my fan favorite songs. I wrote a song called Peaches and Cream. Uh, you know, two weeks after my first child, Banjo, was born, and it started out with me picking up my guitar and my wife and child were down the hallway and I, I'm in my undies on the porch with my guitar and uh, I'm started off writing the classic melodrama kind of first line of, you know, oh, woe is me, the melodrama. And then somewhere along the line, I woke up in this first verse right before the first bridge or pre-chorus. And I was like, wow, we just went through a 38-hour labor two weeks ago. First of all, they're alive. Like when you see a 38-hour labor happen and you go from naively going, oh my goodness, we're going to have a child. And then you realize life and death, birth and death, share a doorway. And what can come in can easily go out and look into histories. Often it did go sideways and, and we lost a lot of women and children. And when you realize that, in time, in the 30-hour labor, it's it's quite a sobering and humbling experience. And here I was two weeks later writing this song, and I was like, I just woke up and you're like, hey, they are live. This is a celebration moment. Let's not write another song about how dark the world is right now because your life is so much better. So yeah, Peaches and Cream is that song and it's still a favorite. So yeah, it affected my, my creativity in that way for sure. I love it. Now, as a musician, you did travel with your family quite a lot. So tell me about that. How how was that traveling with them? And was that a choice you consciously made, you know, with Danielle to be the dad that was around? And were there moments it was challenging? Oh, there's so much much to talk about. (laughs) Yes, it was extreme. Uh, I mean, this, I mean, we, we toured for eight to 10 months a year for a decade. Whoa. With kids, with, we no. did cloth nappies with the first one on buses, oh. and we were blessed. And of course, it was also a challenge. We were able to do that because I had so much success over here. When people bought albums, yeah. and I used every bit of that money to make a career in Europe and in America, and I didn't want to schlep with my family, so we had buses really early on. So for ten years overseas, we didn't make money. We just used all the Aussie money over and like we built a career up and, and I, I did that so I could take my family. And also when we decided to have kids and Dan and I were like, there's an amazing friend of ours who's passed away. Her name is Jackie Gaia and she's a, a real, uh, uh, just a, a cornerstone in, in the music industry for some of us. And she raised kids on the road. Then we asked her, do you think we could do it? And she said, I think you could. I think, yeah, our kids learn math by doing the door, you know, <laughs> and all those things. And so we, I remember leaving the house and I was like, we're going to do this and we're going to be on the road. And white, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed again and naive. And 
And then, yeah, it was real. And I think it's, I got to see their first steps, the first words, yeah. potty training, bicycle, walking. My wife really, in many ways, was responsible for that because she was willing to come on the road and do that. And um, yes, it was hard to be a dad who was playing three hours a night and then come straight off stage and boom, as it was hard for my partner at the time who wasn't performing music like she is now to be on the road and only be the mom while everybody else is working in a workspace. Um, there's no way you ever want to travel and be in the music industry and be a touring musician and not be a part of the job. Like if you're like, it's not necessarily fun, it's not traveling, but those three hours give you purpose every night on stage and, and to be outside of that bubble and then just to be managing the kids with a whole bunch of people who's, it, it was very tricky on my partner. And and so me as well. And uh, yeah, we made some scar tissue for sure. And we are still bouncing back to that. What was some of that scar tissue time? What was the most challenging couple of experiences that you remember while you're on the road? Because surely when they get sick, that's tricky. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's so much that we, that we got from being together and so much support. So I can never underestimate just what we did together and what we took on and how massive it was and how much really at the end of the day, statistically, we were successful at it. But the challenging parts, yeah, kids getting sick, also just depression, just postnatal depression. My wife having just to be that mother on the outside of this working bubble, very difficult, very difficult, very isolating. Trying to find food in America, good food for children, you know, it, it, when you're parked in a parking lot and you're in a different capital city every 23 hours, as much as there's a luxury to that, it's also a challenge to, to keep normality in that. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's, there's quite a few things, you know, just, I mean, there's so many things, actually. <laughs> Lots of challenges. Uh, I think the biggest thing maybe was, you know, and it's maybe not parental as much as more marital. It's just dealing with somebody like myself who might, you know, so I got a bit of attention issues, you know, I've been ADHD, you know, which, you know, it's late in life to realize, but I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that always was. And one is I get hyper-focused. The superpower of it is like, and when I want to do something, I will do it. But the whole world may fall away in the process. And I think that was very hard for my wife dealing with somebody whose frontal lobe was still coming on, undiagnosed ADHD, hyper-focused, and, and, you know, to give myself a bit of a break and both of us a bit of a break, we were having a one in a billion moment in the music industry of that kind of success with people buying that many albums to build a career. And because of what we did and that focus and that naivety, I have a great career around the planet that supports my family and it makes other things possible in our family. But yeah, that hyper-focus, I think would have been very isolating for a mother who was already on the outside of a working bubble. And I'm thankful for my hyper-focus, but I, I also regret some of its downsides. You know, yeah. there's a superpower and a kryptonite to everything, and that would have been hard to live with. Oh. 
we all mark up as parents because there's no perfect and it's incredibly human. <laughs> so can you just find kind of one of your parenting fails that was exclusively you as a dad fail? Just one, John, not the lot, just one. <laughs> oh, I know. It's just so many. They're all just like, don't want to come out. Like, oh, me, 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 me. I'm a good story. Oh, God. Uh, you know, I think uh, one would just be not understanding. Like, at the, even at the time, I didn't really understand my own attention issues and having a, a son who had attention issues and just coming down a little too hard. Like, coming down too hard on somebody like, no, no, you just need to sit and you need to concentrate and stop <laughs> fucking around here and then realizing my boy was internalizing that you know and I look back now with so much more education and go ah man that kid was doing the best he could and I was I was only making it harder for him and I was the safest person in his life you know so there's there's those regrets I got (laughs) I got a bad for um so can we yeah there's a lot of things too can we go and share the video for a bit that you yelled at your son for not putting the tools away? Because really, there's a little bit of swearing here for anyone who hasn't heard this, but can we have a listen to that first? Because I want to catch up on this one. All these things I'm trying to tell this kid, you know, you need to learn how to regulate this energy, man. You know, you need to learn how to regulate, being controlled. Don't let your emotions and your triggers take over. And what did I do? I, all I modeled was fucking exactly the opposite. And... I mean, parents is just fucking real. That's all I have to say. And sometimes all you can really do is go to them and drop off a sorry letter and say, hey, everything I expected out of you, I failed at today myself. And one of the things when I saw that, and it did go pretty much viral because I think it was raw and it was real, and I was watching that thinking, not what a crap dad. I'm going, what a damn good enough dad because you lost it in the heat of the moment, and you explained that, heck, I know more, I know better, but you went from rupture, John, to repair. Tell us a bit about that letter, because really, to me, that was the absolute gold that you gave the world in that in that video. Yeah, I mean, just listening to that, I got all, <laughs> I got all in the feels. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we are going to make mistakes. And we are all going to have challenges and, you know, that, that cliche or that phrase that the only thing you can control is your response to something. And it's huge, you know, coming from a daddy who couldn't regulate himself very much at all to the point of absolutely living hell on the planet and then having my own issues with that and then seeing that in my, my son and, and then realizing that I hadn't, you know, I guess the biggest thing is like, okay, you screw up. How do you make amends? How do you, I think a really big thing, you know, in lots of rites of passage work and, and manhood work is this idea of congruity, you know, to be congruent with your your morals and your emotions and your words. And the one thing my wife always said to my daughter and my kids, like, what's integrity? It's like doing what you say you will do when you say you will do it. You are your word and action. And so you can't be perfect, but you can take responsibility for your mistakes in real time. And so that's what I did in that letter. I just tried to take responsibility. My dad, he'd say sorry very flippantly, and then that would be about it. Or he wouldn't remember the nightmare that was the night before. I mean, like it was almost bipolar and it's extreme. And that was 
shocking to go through so many moments of my life of violence and not really have any sorry and not see any change. Sorries are one thing, but if there's no change, sorries become useless as well. So I just try to model some presence, model that I'm actually going to say sorry. I'm going to put it in writing because both you and I, yeah, we know we because we're very because <laughs> we're very focused. Yes. Ah, whoa, ah, whoa. Um, so may that be a precedent in the timeline that I am as a dad. But I will say it's one of your questions or prompts, you know, about what are the challenges is, you know, or failures or slash both. It's like modeling and regulation. Like I, I can say sorry a thousand times, and my sorries mean nothing. But yeah, regulation. Maybe that's another another answer to another question, yeah. but that's huge. And how did how did your son take the letter? Does because you know did he need to comment on it, or because it's in words? And this is one of the things I keep saying: boys tend to forget words that are verbal, and there's too many of them. But when you write it down, they often go back and reread it and keep it. So, what was your son's reaction to the letter? No, I think he appreciated it. You know, oh. at the same time, you know, he has. His own own world, his own focus, his own priorities. In sorry, from dad, and maybe not necessarily highest on that priority, especially if you don't really like reading your dad's writing or just reading them in general. <laughs> it modeled some kind yeah. of regulation, and that Absolutely. needs to be done over and over again. And as I said, it was one time code on in our life together that yeah. you can go. That, okay, that was a precedent. We can go back to that. Step up with accountability. I'm accountable for that choice. And that, that is what we're modelling. You'll model that for your son now because your dad always wasn't in that space. What's one of your biggest wins that you reckon you've nailed either with your daughter or your son? What? Come on, give us a big win. <laughs> one quickly is my daughter wanted to do gymnastics at the PCYC in Hamilton Hill just down the road. And we got there and then she didn't want to do it. And she was freaking to the point of crying. I'm like, whoa, okay. And come on, babe, you can do this. Come on, babe, you can do this. And then I called Dan. I'm like, dude, this kid's freaking out. I feel like I need to push her through this uncomfortable moment. But I've also pushed kids in through uncomfortable moments and it hasn't it created a bad memory. But this moment in time, it was gnarly anyways. After 45 minutes, we get this child in. And she's begged, please, Dad, please. <laughs> I'm like, God, I feel like, oh, I either let her walk away and she may walk away from so many moments like this in her life, or maybe this is the moment. She went in and she smashed it, sweating in her body. And then she went for weeks afterwards until the teacher's like, she should be on a team and not all of that. It never ended up happening. But that was an edgy moment. But it was all right. We, we got through. And then I guess most recently is we went on a camp together and um just like last week we had my my daughter's 21 my son's 17 my wife and i both work remotely and at home and we tag team and we're ships in the night we had this one one 24-hour moment when it was meant to be three days got whittled down to 24 we found a nice water hole in the southwest the one i found on from a satellite and like we're going there i know we'll be there and um took the ute out there and we dropped in as a family in a remarkable amount of time and we we're such good friends to each other and such good allies to each other. And that's, that's because of the amount of times we've camped before. There's a, a beautiful father in my life named Alan Gray. 
a great family in the in brooms and he's like all this talk of quality time i'm i'm you know i'm calling bullshit he's like it's quantity time like how much time things add up math is math for a reason you get that's what happens with quantity not just like we're gonna get together once a year like and the quantity that we have spent with each other with camping in time on country in time together around that fire and letting things unravel over hours not just over a coffee but over hours away from the devices out of range we've done that a lot and so when we camped last week we dropped in so well as a family i was like we've made this we've been fertilizing this soil we've been taking care of this space for a long time and the proof was in the pudding. It was what we all needed. And so I'm very proud of the hours that we've spent together camping, getting away from the distractions, sitting in silence, playing Scrabble, playing Bananagrams, Batgammon, charades, you know, all those things. <laughs> they, they are so wholesome, but like they, they are fertilizer. They are fertilizer for trusting and intimacy and safe space yeah that is just pure magic what you've just said okay so john if i asked you your biggest (laughs) it is i know it really gave me all these big feels what's your biggest fear you know when it comes to raising your kids and your kids are almost adults so what's your biggest fear as they launch out into that world that we've created for them it's a hearsay quote, you know, like when somebody goes, oh, you know, Jung once said, like, okay, so I haven't heard it from Jung. I've heard somebody say they've heard it from Jung. <laughs> uh, but there's this Jung quote. It's like the biggest challenge for us won't be environmental, political, health, longevity. It's going to be not going insane in this society that we live in. And uh, that really rings true the more and more. I see the online world, the social media world, oh, just watching what's happening during this referendum and it's getting wacky and, and being able with AI and I'm not, I'm not anti anything. I use a lot of tech. I'm here right now interfacing with the, but like with AI and media post-truth, it's like what is real is getting blurry and blurrier. Know thyself will become utmost important. And then this black mirror, what it's doing to our attention span. There's so many people who actually have attention deficit symptoms through this. Like our, our attention span's gone from two minutes to less than 30 seconds. That's the data. So long story short, I worry about my kids' mental health. I worry about my mental health, my wife's, my family, my community in this bombardment of data uh, and a lot of it's misleading a lot of it's, it has ulterior motives to get us to shop or otherwise devote certain ways and it takes us away from the moment and where we are our senses and i know it's a challenge for me who's only had these kind of devices in my life for like the last 20 30 years because i was lucky enough to grow up in the world where we didn't have a phone everywhere but these kids born into it without trying to be like some old guy who's like, well, buck with our kid would do homework on the mm-hmm. shovel. There's a lot of blessed things to technology. But like I said before, there's superpowers and there's kryptonites. There's good and there's bad. And I need, I really hope 
I can help them, but also that they just find good allies and good information to build scaffolding that has never before been needed. We are designed to interface with 150 to 200 people and know their business. And now we know everybody's business. And that's, I think that's a little, we're not designed for that, the hardware. So mm. helping them build software for that, that's what I'm, you know, that's probably my biggest worry. I think also that we are social species and when we're healthiest, we're deeply connected. And you already used the word intimacy at some point. I worry that they're going to be capable of genuine, respectful, joyful intimacy because we've got all the other stuff going down. Yeah, we're connected digitally, but it's never the same. And we are still wired for connection. So you're doing a really good job in that space. I'm going to ask you another tough question, John. You ready? Okay, you're only allowed to choose one thing. <laughs> one <laughs> thing you want your kids, to, your kids to learn from you because you are their dad. But one thing I want them to learn from me. Well, see, I'm flawed. <laughs> and I'm always going to be flawed. So, like, what I want them to learn from me is probably, like, the best of me that is not 100% always online. I think I want them to learn... Or that they thought I had enough integrity that my words, you know, were in my actions, that I wasn't a hypocrite, you know? We're all hypocritical. We're all going to contradict ourselves. I am. But that there was enough integrity there that that what I was trying to teach them, the best parts of me, uh, were believable. It's beautiful. All right. So the last little bit, not as hard as that one. That was a curly one. Okay. So if you could go back in time before your beautiful daughter arrived and could give some advice to yourself just before you become a dad, what would that advice be? (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, buddy. Um, (laughs) Come over here. Sit down. Um, It's going to be so much harder for your partner than it is going to be on you because of the physical the physical uh, demands and the hormonal upheaval please please be really sensitive and go over and beyond on the thoughtfulness because you'll probably just be enough to go way beyond what you think is you know, just try not to be asked um, and be present. If you can work on your attention as far as be really with your job when you're at your job. But when you're home, like leave the job behind. Stop thinking about the band, the recording, the tour, uh, just the guitar, <laughs> the songs rattling around in your head. All the things you, all the, all the million one creative things, like that's beautiful and that's fine. But like when you're home, they need you to be that tunnel vision. They deserve your tunnel vision that, that you are, you are their masterpiece as well now, not just the songs, but I wish I could have really gotten that through to that young man and it took, you know, it almost took a decade for that to actually really sink in. Uh, John, what a chat. Thank you so much. Oh, no worries. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions and thank you for all the great work you do. 
Musician John Butler. John had some deep ideas on how to be a good enough dad, so we're going to add them to our good enough dad checklist. The first one is nurture the traditional family time. Doesn't matter what you do, whether it's movie nights or Sunday fry ups or you love camping. You've got to fertilise those times and do them over and over again because later it's it's really powerful because they just play out beautifully. Secondly, own your own behaviour and be accountable if it's not how you would like to be a dad. And then just make amends genuinely. And thirdly... I love it when he said, when you come home, be home. In other words, no matter what was in your head during the day, leave the job. Leave the things, leave your footy tipping out of your head. Just come home and be home in that place, fully present. I'm Maggie Dent and this is The Good Enough Dad. Follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.